This is Prairie Room Companion, episode 22 for September 15th, 2010. Newman, the man, the legend, the beatified. Welcome to This Week on Prairie Room Companion. I'm Dr. Chris Bergwald. And I'm Father Andrew Dickinson. And, <laughs> and uh, I'm not laughing at Father. I'm laughing because Father and I were talking beforehand about you know, me doing a more dialogical introduction that way. And I said we should conclude after that by saying we're here to pump you up. But people, most of you may not have any idea what that reference is to. So I started to laugh. So sorry, Father. Off to a great start That's here. That's okay because nothing is so quickly out of date as the up-to-date. Exactly. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, my cultural references, I think, are all too often out of date. But, yeah, like you just said. <laughs> Um, that's okay. So anyway, uh, Father and I thought that this week uh, we might talk about um, John Henry Cardinal Newman, who that's uh, a name. That's a that's a name who is about to be beatified by Pope Benedict on September nineteenth um, in England. Uh, it's a little bit unusual because typically the Holy Father. Pope Benedict, at least specifically, um, has not been presiding over over beatifications. Beatifications have been done, as this one is, in the uh, the to be beatified person's um, home, uh, home diocese, home region, whatever it may be, home country, uh, and then the canonizations are being done in Rome with Pope Benedict presiding. Uh, but this time, Benedict is going to Ro- or to England to preside at the beatification, was which is a bit unusual. Very much so, but a sign of his great love uh, for the writings and thought uh, of Cardinal Newman. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, Father and I both had come across an article that then Cardinal Ratzinger um, had written, or actually it was addressed he had given back in 1990 on the occasion of of, po- of sorry of Cardinal Newman's death. Um, uh, in which he sort of speaks about the the important role that Cardinal Newman's thought had on him as he was going through his studies as a seminarian um, and then his early uh, theolo- doctoral studies uh, for his for his doctorate in theology. So anyway, so there's this the, the, there's that's sort of the the, the reason why, one reason why we thought it might be good to talk about Newman um, and and the the way we we thought we proceed is is by giving a quick biographical sketch. Of, of Cardinal Newman, and then talking about some of the, the distinctive uh, theological points um, in his work um, and his writings. Um, any other and reasons? I, another good reason to, uh, to talk about Cardinal Newman is just that uh, for any younger listeners or parents of younger listeners out there, that it's Cardinal Newman whose patronage uh, that Catholic uh, campus ministry is in many ways based off of, if you ever heard of Newman Centers at a university, like I am a chaplain for a Newman Center for SDSU, that Newman Centers aren't just about becoming a new man, or maybe you're a new man on campus, but it's about <laughs> Cardinal Newman. It's, it's his name. And uh, I know sometimes people don't really know that, and he's uh, outside maybe some certain intellectual circles in the church. He's not, uh, doesn't have a popular following, and we'd like to maybe increase that following. Right. Um, he's a contemporary figure who, in many ways, uh, is very relevant to um, the, the, the church, what the church is going through at the beginning of the 21st century. Uh, but, but we'll sort of hopefully tease some of those things out as we proceed. Uh, just in terms of biography, Cardinal Newman was not born as a Catholic. Many people are aware of that. Uh, he was born um, into an Anglican family, of course, 
the vast majority of, of, of Englishmen and women um, are Anglicans, at least nominally, and that was certainly the case in the uh, the nineteenth century as well. Um, so he was born into uh, an Anglican family. He's around fifteen years old when he had a. a, a, a a deeper conversion experience, conversion to to Christ, conversion to Christianity in the sense of of maybe an awakening or an enlightenment of 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 the centrality of Jesus Christ in his own life. And uh, it's somewhat interesting to me, at least, this this first conversion was to uh, low church Anglicanism. That's that is evangelical England Anglicanism, which had has more of a, a Calvinist bent. Uh, for those of you not familiar, within Anglicanism, there are many varieties of Anglicanism, somewhat similar maybe to the way that within Catholicism there are many different forms of authentic Catholicism. Um, in the English or in the Anglican Church, that tends to be one of two strands: um, Low Church or Evangelical um, Anglicanism, which would be somewhat akin to what we as Americans are familiar with when it comes to popular evangelicalism. Uh, but then high church Anglicanism, which is much more similar to uh, the Catholic church in the sense of, of higher, strong emphasis on hierarchy, um, on dogma, doctrine, um, all those sorts of things. So, so his conversion... Liturgy. Go ahead, Father, sorry. Uh, liturgy as well, the way they celebrate uh, the Mass is also a very marked part of kind of the high church Anglicanism. And they right. also will wear a uh, high church Anglican likely to wear clerical garb like a Catholic priest would, whereas a low church Anglican would be more likely to be dressed uh, maybe like uh, your evangelical minister down the road uh, just in uh, business attire. So those are some of the distinctive. So he was he was born into, or well, he his conversion led him into this sort of uh, low church Anglicanism, evangelical Anglicanism. Um, he 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 went through his studies. He was um, ordained as an Anglican priest, but it was over over the period of study in in, in his uh, sort of early adulthood, he became um, more and more of a high church Anglican um, in the ways that, that Father and I had just outlined what the the distinctives are um and and came to see more and more uh, he placed more and more emphasis on combating um theological or religious liberalism uh father do you want to give it a go at sort of outlining maybe what he means by or what new when when carl newman talked about liberalism what did he have in mind i don't really like talking about liberalism maybe you should (laughs) <laughs> all right i i i'm happy to do that that was unfair of me to father because i i sprang that on him uh newman yes yes you did yes i did newman um newman emphasized as we talked about how high church anglicanism had more of an emphasis on dogma and doctrine uh and and he newman believed and came to believe more and more strongly that truth is truth as opposed to uh, a sort of relativism um, which is willing to be more subjective if, if, in, 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 as, as it goes about presenting um, what Christianity is. Not so much emphasis on the truth of doctrine, um, uh, more, but more of a, a religious relativism. Uh, at least that's my understanding of liberalism. Uh, Father, you don't disagree, I presume. No, I don't, necess- I don't uh, disagree necessarily. Okay, that, fair enough. Uh, Father reserves the right to disagree at a later time, and I'm happy to be in any way corrected by my brother in Christ, well, who's also a priest. My, well, yeah, it's, my only question would be more because uh, maybe in his view of that liberalism, too, is that notion also with his notion of a liberal education, 
in his idea of a university, which is a very uh, poignant document in our own day uh, when looking at uh, the structure of colleges and universities. And so I'd always kind of hold that back as a little reservation. There you go. But Fair we enough. can move on. We can Fair move on. Very good. So what, and part of this search, as he became a high church Anglican, was he, he sought to highlight Anglicanism as what he called the via media, uh, Latin, the middle way between um, low church Protestantism on one hand, and then nefarious Roman Catholicism on the other. He didn't use the term nefarious, but early on he didn't, there was no love lost for him when it came to Roman Catholicism, which I don't think is surprising given the fact that he was, after all, English and the history of the church uh, with during and after the Reformation um, in England. Uh, so he was trying to walk, trying to, to articulate rather how um, Anglicanism represents sort of the middle way, the moderate, the prudent approach uh, to Christianity, um, as opposed to Roman Catholicism on one hand, um, evangelicalism on the other hand. Uh, and he became uh, as as he. Uh, Proceeded throughout his his career as as a Anglican priest and as a as a theologian, uh, he was one of the the founders of the Oxford movement. Of course, a movement that was centered in Oxford. Uh, Father, enough. Father, what is? I know you know this one. What is the Oxford movement? Well, the Oxford movement was uh, among some of the dons and the priests and those who uh, don would be a name of uh, an Anglican priest who was working in Oxford and some of the different colleges. Um, but it was an, an effort on their part to, uh, to reform in some way uh, uh, Anglicanism, to uh, make sure that uh, the people, and, and part of that, in many ways, connected with that uh, f- uh, effort of his against liberalism, but to make sure that they were staying founded in the scriptures and in response to uh, the needs uh, of their own times. Uh, they're sometimes also called uh, Tractarians, Tractarians because they published tracts or pamphlets um, to make sure that the Church of England always had a definitive and sure basis for its doctrine and discipline. And uh, so because of this kind of the struggle in this way, uh, he became known as uh, one of the leaders of this, of this Oxford movement, which was really around the 1930s or so, or probably 1930s, 1830s in uh, Britain at that time. Uh, and this is, uh, this is also how, where he became known uh, in many ways, aside from his own position at Oxford. Um, but this is where be, he became known quite strongly in England as an intellectual, as an author, as a speaker, as a preacher. Um, they still have collections of his sermons that are published today that are very popular. Uh, but it's also at the same time in the same investigation um, when uh, when Newman began to have his own doubts about the Anglican claim. Yeah, somewhere when he was in his late 30s. Um, by the way, just biographically, he was born in 1801 at the very beginning of the 19th century. And it was in the late 1840s that he, he began to question um, his, his view as Anglicanism as the via media, the, the proper... Uh, path or the, or the fullness of Christianity uh, between the, the two extremes, so to speak, of Roman Catholicism and um, low church or evangelical Protestantism. Uh, and one of the things um, that's always fascinated me about Newman is this, one of the things that prompted this, this 
the beginning of these doubts, which ultimately led him into the Catholic Church, is he began an extended reading of the Church Fathers. And Carl Newman is, is famous for having said, to be steeped in history, or to be steeped in Church history, is to cease to be Protestant. That is, the more that you become familiar with church history, and particularly the church fathers, the writings of, of the giants of, of the early centuries of Christianity, um, the more you read them, their, their writings, the more you come to find that what they lived, the faith as it was believed and practiced then, um, is not so much Protestantism, um, to use the umbrella term, but is rather much more um, Roman Catholicism. Very much so, and to the point where uh, Dr. Bergwald, where his uh, conversion came shortly after that, he was actually even writing a book at the time called uh, An Essay on the Development of Christian Doctrine. So as we began to look at these things, look at these figures, Augustine. Augustine played a large role in his conversion right. uh, to the Catholic Church, uh, but also into uh, later controversies for those uh, for those church nerds that are scoring at home, you know, who's reading into the monophysite controversy and uh, in this heresy as he started to doubt some of his own Anglican positions in this regard. Uh, and so and uh, so he entered the church, just biographically speaking, entered the church on October 9th, uh, 1845. And so 1845, he would have been, uh, I believe, 44 uh, years old at that time, and uh, great difficulty for him, great consequences for him, broken friendships, relationships, he lost uh, his living, even to a certain extent, that he had to give up his position as an Anglican priest, obviously, you know, you can't be an Anglican priest when you're a Catholic, right. um, and so uh, uh, just a, a difficult and in some ways courageous movement of his. And so from there, he, 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 was, he was brought into the church actually by um, an Italian priest, um, Father Dominic Barberi. Uh, then Cardinal Newman, after he entered the church, uh, not, he wasn't Cardinal Newman then, John Henry Newman, uh, traveled to Rome. And um, in October of 1846, he was ordained a priest by a cardinal in Rome uh, and, and was given his degree of studies, Doctrine and Divinity, by by Pope Pius IX. So, 1846 now, he has become, he's not just Catholic, but he's become a Catholic priest. And he returns home to England um, the next year in 1847 um, and is now an ordained Catholic priest. Uh, and he continues much of the writing, um, many of the, the similar, the the, the, the the themes that, that had been important to him as an Anglican, as a Tractarian, uh, as a member of the Oxford Movement, would remain important to him um, as, as a Catholic. You mentioned his, his work on the development of doctrine. It's one of the things that he's most well noted for. Um, the idea that, that what, what belongs to the deposit of faith, what we believe as Catholics, um, as Christians, um, flows... Well, it, it grows organically. Uh, I, I don't know if, and Father, you might know this, I don't know if it's Newman's own image or not, but the image that's often used, the analogy is of an acorn into an oak tree. Um, they are the same entity, the same biological reality, but they obviously look very different. And something similar happens, or something similar is true, at least with regard to 
to Christianity, to the church, to the beliefs of the church. Uh, there's development, there's growth that happens. Everything that's alive grows and to some degree changes um, as it matures. And, and that was uh, that was Newman's point with regard to what we believe. Um, it somehow develops over time, never contradicting itself, but maybe manifesting itself in different ways. Is that is there a fair summary? I think it's a very fair summary, and one has to understand that when Newman would talk about the development of doctrine, there would always be that notion of continuity, um, that the acorn can only become an oak tree, and an oak tree can only come from an acorn. Right. And so notions such as uh, devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary and the Saints, uh, purgatory, the Trinity, uh, things like that, which uh, may not be explicit in Scripture, which may not be explicit in Scripture, are still nascent, are still seminal. Uh, within it. And uh, that, I think one of the examples he would use is that St. Paul, uh, when, well, he may not have known the doctrine of the Trinity in its explicit form, may not have known of uh, devotion to the Blessed Virgin, Mary, Blessed Virgin Mary in its explicit form, he would understand and he would be able to recognize it and know it in that sense. Now, this is to be definitely something different than kind of um, that, that liberalism, which he was a critic of, and uh, which is still a difficulty in the church today, where people would want to think about the church doctrine as church doctrine as evolving according to their own ideas or to the spirit of the time. This is certainly not what Newman would talk about uh, for the development of Christian doctrine. And it sort of flows into another topic that I'd like to hear your thoughts on, that is Newman's views, um, somewhat well-known in theological circles, on conscience. Uh, itself, and also particularly how it relates to papal authority. Can you speak about that a little bit, Father? Certainly. Uh, Newman's, uh, Newman kind of got wrapped in this whole notion on, on conscience and papal authority at the time of uh, the First Vatican Council. And of course, we know that uh, papal infallibility was explicitly defined. Now, papal infallibility was always in practice in any ways and defended and based upon, of course, Matthew 16, John chapter 20, uh, references to Isaiah 22, and uh, other other areas. But it was explicitly and finally defined in its full form in the First Vatican Council in uh, the late uh, 19th century. And here, Carmen Newman kind of got drawn into a bit uh, in a couple ways. One, because he was a public Catholic figure, and so in some ways he was ridiculed by it, but also he was brought in for a lot of questions. Uh, because people would say, well, if that's the case, if you have to obey the authority of the Pope, can you be a good Catholic and a good Englishman? Can you be a good Catholic and a good Englishman? And so he would work quite explicitly on explaining how uh, papal authority in many ways is no different than uh, a well-formed human conscience. In fact, in a letter to the Duke of Norfolk, who uh, I believe was a Catholic, uh, which is rather odd amongst the royalty of, uh, of England, but was a Catholic, explained to him uh, this, uh, it's, it's a very famous and very beautiful letter, but explained to him this connection between infallibility and uh, or papal authority and, and Christian conscience. It even speaks about how the well-formed conscience is uh, an aboriginal vicar of Christ, uh, guiding us in that right and wrong, because, of course, that papal authority, the vicar of Christ, papal infallibility is in matters of faith and morals, not in matters of mathematics or uh, NFL or NFL fantasy football. <laughs> uh, 
So, uh, so the question becomes then, though, with his work on conscience, uh, kind of the things on our own day, is that we hear people today say a lot, you know, well, follow your conscience, follow your conscience. And, you know, Dr. Bergwald, I don't know about you, but to me, that's a little worrisome, especially on a college campus. Because? Because what if I'm following a badly formed conscience, right? It's a... Uh, you're simply following my feelings, doing what my heart desires, isn't always going to lead me to happiness. Because sometimes my heart desires for me to eat a whole container of uh, chips, soy cookies. But I know that's not going to lead me to happiness in the long run. And so that's why we need to have this idea that uh, the conscience has to be formed according uh, to Christian teaching. That it's in that union between the Christian faith uh, and our conscience, learning that and knowing it, and then we can apply that conscience to our day. Then we can follow our conscience. It's one of the, actually this. This is one of the really um, interesting areas of, of Catholic moral teaching, Catholic moral theology. If you look at the Catechism, the Catechism, uh, and somebody could point out this this paragraph in the Catechism: we are obliged to follow our consciences. That's true. However, to, to I'm basically restating what you were just saying, Father. Um, uh, an earlier article in the Catechism says that we are also obliged to form our consciences. And that even though if we do follow our conscience, which we're obliged to do, we can be culpable for um, acts of sin which we've committed precisely because perhaps we have failed to form our conscience, conscience properly. So, and, 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 uh, I don't know, unfortunately, maybe not. Maybe, might be the right way to put it, but there has been this sort of people t- trying to take what Newman says here and which the church has articulated um, uh, as well over time and pull it out of context and say, just follow, follow your conscience, as you were just saying, when that right. certainly is, as, as you were just saying, Father, uh, important, but as also has to be a well-formed conscience. So what any, go ahead, sir. Uh, just on that regard, you had pointed this out earlier, a beautiful quote uh, that, Cardinal Ratzinger pulled out in his address from 1990, from the 100th anniversary of Newman's death. But 1990 pulls quote where he says, true Christendom, the true Christian life, Christian kingdom, true Christendom is shown in obedience and not through a state of consciousness or feeling, right? Thus, the whole duty and work of a Christian is made up of these two parts, faith and obedience, and that's kind of a, a hard pill to swallow in our own modern vision uh, times of life in Christianity and Catholicism, where we want to reduce it to that feeling, that good feeling, that gather around gang, let's have a good time together. And what, what's what's provoking there, compelling perhaps as well, um, is that this is said. Uh, this is this is Ratzinger's. Uh, quoting from um, Cardinal Newman, uh, and Newman's the same one who has all this emphasis on conscience, which which just goes to, I think, sh- highlight the fact that we don't get um, conscience, so to speak. Or at least we don't get it in the way that, that Newman and the church in, um, understand it. That, that, that it's not incompatible to, on the one hand, affirm um, the importance of following our conscience, and on the other hand, affirm that um, true Christendom is shown in obedience, um, it's faith and obedience. These are the two parts of, of the whole duty and work of a Christian. As, as yeah, Carl, and no one Carl ever Lumber. writes a good hymn about obedience. I can yeah. never find a good <laughs> hymn about obedience for Sunday Mass. Perhaps, Father, you ought to write one. Uh, you've never heard me try to compose <laughs> lyrical thought. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, that, that, that's indeed true. So one of the other interesting things is we sort of, by the way, uh, it's sort of a biographical point, but relating to his theological work. Um, Cardinal Newman, refer to him as Cardinal, was made a Cardinal even though he was neither a bishop nor uh, a resident in Rome. At, at that point, it was very unusual um, for someone to receive the red hat of a cardinal um, if they weren't a bishop or if they didn't live in Rome. Typically, it was one or the other. Either you were a bishop um, uh, or you lived in Rome. And for Newman, neither was true. So, anyway. So, talking about Ratzinger's article leads us uh, right into his visit as Pope Benedict now, um, his visit to England uh, for, among other purposes, the beatification of, of Cardinal Newman on, on September 19th here, just coming up um, in the next several days. Um, anything, Father, about this visit that's noteworthy that we, sh- we should be attentive to? Well, it's obviously, uh, for anyone that's aware of just of what's been going on in the world, what's been going on in Europe over the past uh, 12 months or so, knows that it's a very, uh, it'll be a very interesting time for him to be in England. Well, first of all, just that England has still in its roots a, a prejudice against Catholicism. Uh, Catholics are somewhat associated with the Irish, associated with poverty, associated with uh, not being part of the upper class. It still is a law that uh, the king or queen of England cannot be Catholic. You know, it's an actual explicit law in England. Uh, and so there's still is in some ways some of that resistance. But then, you know, the cultural impact of uh, the, uh, the report in Ireland uh, in, uh, I believe it was January or February of last year on uh, sexual abuse uh, in uh, Catholic-run schools, whether by priests or religious or by laity, so still a lot of fallout in that way and a lot of uh, bad press uh, towards Pope Benedict. In fact, uh, there's even a vocal uh, minority that keeps on arguing that uh, Britain should arrest Pope Benedict when he comes there. But I don't think those stories are going to be the ones that uh, carry the day. Uh, I hope not. <laughs> well, I, I have confidence that Pope Benedict, I mean, the thing is, uh, John Allen, uh, author, uh, author for the National Catholic Reporter, uh, about the best thing in that uh, magazine or newspaper. John Allen says, uh, talks about how um, a, an advisor of John Paul II used to say that people came to see John Paul II to see the singer, but not the song. And pointed out that uh, Pope Benedict has the opposite problem. Many people like his message, but they're not really sure about his personality. And I think his message about um, the positive option of Catholicism, that Catholicism doesn't just offer a list of no's, but a list of yeses. I think that will be, uh, I'm very excited to hear what he has to say. And Pope Benedict isn't afraid of addressing wounds and hurt and uh, the issues that are going on of the day. He's not going to skirt the issue of, uh, of sexual abuse uh, by members of the clergy. Right, and 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 to the, the 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 other point along those lines not being afraid to address things the 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 growing well already pervasive secularism particularly of Europe is a is a topic near and dear to his heart pastorally speaking but also theologically and I'm very um curious and excited, frankly, to hear what he has to say in England about secularism and about what Catholicism has to offer instead, as you were talking about the positivity of the faith, um, the fulfillment that Catholicism brings. Uh, 
Pope Benedict is is very much continuing John Paul II's um, emphasis on the new evangelization. Um, Pope Benedict this summer, in fact, began uh, uh, a new pontifical council on um, the new evangelization. Uh, evangelization, I believe. So renew evangelization, and, and and so to hear, I'm very curious to hear what he has to say um, in a country that is in very many ways just nominally Christian. Um, one of the articles I think Alan or something that Alan cites in his article is that even in in, in a English household where both parents are religious, there is just under half a chance, half for, uh, just under fifty percent chance that uh, one of their children will grow up and will remain Christian. Um, yeah, along those uh, same lines, I remember hearing a, it's an apocryphal story, maybe not a true story, that I think in the 2000 uh, British census that uh, over 100,000 people in Britain identified their religion as Jedi. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yes, the, uh, the, the uh, well, I, I was going to say growing Jedi religion. I don't know if that's true. Uh, along those lines, uh, in, also well, George Lucas hasn't held it in the past 10 years. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, I, don't know, I don't know if you know that there's, uh, there's yeah exactly there's also interestingly um, in terms of pop, pop, other out of date pop culture references there is a uh, I don't remember what the name is but the movie the uh, the movie The Matrix there was actually a religion that uh, <laughs> came out of apparently um, the, Ma- the the movie The Matrix as well people who were in England or in California uh, yes no <laughs> But yeah, some people claim, you know, I don't remember what they call it now. But anyway, so uh, I don't think it had nearly the number of, of adherents as Jediism uh, supposedly does in England. But certainly, yeah, that's that just gives you a hint. Apocryphal or not, um, it, it, it indicates how Christianity's um, strength in England, at least among the, 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 uh, the people who have been there for a long time as opposed to immigrants um, is certainly waning. And it will be interesting to see what Benedict has to say, uh, not just to the Catholics in England, but to, to the larger culture, to Anglicans and just to English society in general. Yeah. And why, because he's so good at, at making that sale. I mean, that's really because uh, he has the heart of a teacher and a good teacher knows his audience and he knows his audience. He knows uh, the spirit of the day and he can speak uh, to it with compassion, with love with a shepherd's heart and praise God with the gift of the Holy Spirit as a uh, deacon, priest, bishop, and pope. Right. And so let's, we'll watch and, of course, certainly pray for the Holy Father and um, the, uh, the, all those who will be participating in the various masses and, and presentations and other events that he's involved in. So any other f- thoughts, Father, on either the visit or on Cardinal Newman himself? Yes, I'd like to make a confession, actually. I can't abs- give absolution, but go ahead. All right. Well, my confession is I'm so excited for his visit uh, this weekend and for the beatification that I'm thinking I may not even write my homily until I can hear or see a glimpse of the text of his uh, the beatification homily or some of those other events that he'll be having. In England. Wow. So, uh, wow. So, uh, mm-hmm. Saturday, you might be busy. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, I, I look forward next week hearing how that uh, went. Maybe we can get, I know, Father, uh, sometimes or often you will post your homilies online. It might be good sometimes. When I'm not lazy. It might be good p- to point people to that perhaps next week. So, I will do that. 
Very good. So that's it for this week in Prayer Room Companion. Um, Father and I will be back next week. In the meantime, as always, if you f- feel free to email us. You can email me at cbergwald at sfcatholic.org. Any questions, comments, any issues that you'd like us to address in future podcasts. Father and I always usually, usually manage to come up with something, but we're happy to hear what you might uh, want to hear about from us. So with that, God bless, and we'll see you next time.